All right, so chapter 9 in our sermon series on the life of David, this, this comes at what is kind of functionally the honeymoon of, of David's reign as king. Like Things are going incredibly well, even to the degree that in, in, as a summary sat- statement in the chapter before, it says in, in 8 verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. That That statement is a big deal because it's happening right in the middle of a chapter that is saying all these things about how how David has achieved victory over Israel's enemies. And so in many ways, it is tying a bow on the completion and the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and then to Moses and then to Israel in general. This is the moment. And so if you were part of the original audience that was reading or, or hearing 1 and 2 Samuel you would be hearing that, that God came through, that David is not a king like the nations. He is a king far greater than the nations, far greater than any king Israel or anyone has seen in history so far. And so his original, the original audience would have been on the edge of their seat like, okay, this is the moment. It's here. Now what? Right? What? What is God going to do with all of this victory, with all of this glory? What is David, how is David going to steward that in a way that is a faithful response to God's promises being fulfilled? What, do he, what does he do when all he does is win? He's kind. I hope that feels anticlimactic, right? Because it would feel anticlimactic to the original audience as well. And it's, and, but it's anticlimactic for us because for a very different reason, right? For us, it's because I think we take kindness for granted, right? When someone isn't kind to you, you think to yourself, right, what is that guy's problem? Or did, that, did, that, did this woman wake up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, right? We, we view kindness as a basic human decency thing, right? But it's actually not. It's not very basic at all. (laughs) In fact, kindness goes against the grain both of our culture and of our hearts in very different ways. And so chapter 9 is following and follows chapter 8 because the author of Samuel and God himself, because this is God's word, knows and understands that to take our kindness or to take others' kindness for granted is also to take God's kindness for granted. Because those two things, the horizontal and the vertical, are linked. And so this morning, we can talk about the shape, the motive, and the fuel for David's kindness. And ask, as a mirror, what is that, what is it reflecting back to us that we need to see more clearly? Right? So let's talk about the shape of David's kindness. And and is we have to know, first of all, that this is incredibly countercultural. It is if we take it for granted, it is, it would have been shocking for for, for in David's time, right? Because the first order of business for any new dynasty, anywhere in the world, and this is especially true in the ancient Near East, the first order of business is to immediately execute all living members of the previous royal family, right? It would have been to cut off that line, and it's just, it's, it, this is just common sense pragmatism. You cannot let survivors foment rebellion while you are in, when your reign is in its infancy, when you are trying to establish your rule and your throne. It is important for the sake of the order of the kingdom even. 
It is a sacrifice of the few for the many. If, you, if, if, if the previous ruling family had daughters, you might marry them into your family for legitimacy, and you can say that now this is actually two dynasties in one, but those daughters were not exactly cherished. That was not exactly good news for them. So when, when Mephibosheth is saying in verse 2, I am your servant, and then again, when he's saying, uh, you know, who am I that I would be a, a dog that you would treat and have at your table? What he, he's, not, he's not actually like, he's not beating himself up. Or he's not struggling with self-esteem. He's not, um, this isn't a mere formality that he's, uh, or like an equation or a formula that he's, he's articulating either. It is fear. <laughs> he thinks he's about to die. And he is trying to reassure David with every with everything he has and every opportunity he has of his loyalty to David, that he is not going to foment any rebellion or be a problem or be divisive, etc. Now, here's the crazy part. This is 10 years into David's reign. This was not the first order of business. It was an out-of-the-blue request breaking through for David the white noise of responsibilities that are daily competing for his attention. This comes out of the blue. He's, he's thinking, like, you can kind of almost imagine, like, somebody's talking about the, uh, you know, wheat trading or something, and he's like, hey, you know what? Here's what I want to know. Does anybody from, from Saul's household still need to be shown the kindness of God? Everybody around him be like, now? Really? Ten years in? Mephibosheth probably thought, like, maybe I flew under the radar enough. He's, he's been in hiding. He's been trying to keep his head down. Maybe he actually can relax a little bit after ten years. But then somebody comes and says, hey, the king wants to see you now. <laughs> the point in this is for this to happen at this time means that this kindness was not incidental. It wasn't because David came across a random opportunity. He actually had to bring it up himself. It did not happen as he went about his business. It was intentional, requiring forethought and initiative against the grain of his everyday rhythms of ruling. Right? This is why, for the original audience, it would have been a record skip, and to us it would be common sense. It required such intentionality. But also, it is important for us to know that this would have been shocking to, um, to the original audience because for us, when, we, when I say we take it for granted, it's actually for like a really beautiful reason. Right? We live in a world, and especially in a culture, our culture in the modern West, that is so thoroughly shaped by Christianity, and especially passages like 2 Samuel 9, that even the most ardent atheist would say, yes, this is a good thing. Said atheist would actually be shaped by Christianity because it has, that has been happening in our culture for hundreds and hundreds of years and would not even associate this kind of kindness with a specific understanding of grace and love from God. But that's exactly what it is, right? Mark Sayers, he's an Australian pastor and author. He says that secularism is the pursuit of the kingdom without the king. 
is the pursuit of the kingdom without the king. And so we take this for granted because we are actually used to and have been shaped to love and value kingdom things, even if we do not recognize or claim allegiance to the king. That's incredible. But it introduces some challenges. And some of those challenges include our ability to understand David's true, David's true motive in the midst of this kindness. So that's what we're going to talk about next, the, the, David's motive for his kindness. Now, Mephibosheth, besides having like one of the hardest names to pronounce consistently in Scripture, right? Let's, I mean, we can own that, right? He's also the only surviving son and heir of Saul's dynasty, right? At five years old, he was probably, you know, playing with whatever ancient Near Eastern wooden blocks might have been at that time. I know they didn't have Legos, but I have no idea what the alternative would be, right? Um, He was five years old when he was in the palace, and the palace uh, staff and everybody received news that King Saul and all of his sons, including uh, Mephibosheth's dad, Jonathan, and his uncles, were killed and slaughtered in a battle with the Philistines at a place called Jezreel. Now, everything I just said about the first order of business for, for a new dynasty means that everyone in that palace staff would have known that the Philistines were almost certainly on their way. And at this time, David is still kind of running away from Saul while trying to you know, flee the Philistines at the same time. And so he and his guerrilla band are at large still. And without Saul in the picture, who David honored as God's anointed, even though he was persecuting him, and without Jonathan in the picture, whom David had, a, had made a covenant of friendship with, then there was nothing, nothing stopping the Philistines or David from taking the throne and cleaning house, and they would be racing each other to get there first. That's the context for 2 Samuel 4, which happened, you know, five chapters earlier. And in the panic and the pandemonium, of of this rush to flee, Mephibosheth's nurse grabbed him on the run and tripped and fell. And in that fall, she broke both of Mephibosheth's ankles. And because they didn't have modern medicine, it didn't heal right, and so he has difficulty walking if he is able to walk at all. And now, if you can do math of, you know, It's been 10 years since David assumed his reign. This happened at five, so he's in his mid to late teens, probably. But it is at that time, in that age, when he would have been assuming the throne. He would have been training and learning under his father and his father's advisors how how to rule. And now he's being summoned by the king he thinks is going to kill him. Now, when we read all this and we understand all this, we... We, we see how Mephibosheth is in every way an innocent victim, right? His only crime, it's not a crime, is being born at the wrong time in the wrong place to the wrong family in history. We have compassion for Mephibosheth. We would be like, David shouldn't, shouldn't execute him. He's, he's innocent. He's a victim in the situation. He, of course he should have compassion. We take that for granted, right? But that's because... We read into David's motive that his motive was compassion. Compassion was not David's motive for, or for his kindness. Compassion is the fruit that results from kindness. Compassion is the shape of kindness. It is not the motive of it. The motive 
his covenant. We know this because in, second, in 1 Samuel 24, back when we, you know, Michael preached on this a few weeks ago, when David encounters Saul in a cave and has a chance to kill him but doesn't, he confronts Saul and shows him, hey, I'm not, I'm, you are God's anointed. I'm not going to harm you. Let me prove to you. Stop, stop trying to kill me, please. This is what happens. In 1 Samuel 24, uh, Saul says to David, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. David swore a covenant. His motive for kindness to Mephibosheth is because he promised to, he swore to. Now, a covenant is a solemn promise or a commitment, and it is often but not always made with vows, and it is the basis of how we understand and read not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. This is what we are saying when we say that Jesus came and the gospel is the new covenant What we are saying is, it is the fulfillment of all of God's previous promises to his people, his commitment that he has made time and again, it is being fulfilled, and then we are invited into relationship through the covenant that Christ makes with his people, right? Covenant and not compassion was David's motive. This is important for us, and we're blind to it in many ways, because if, if you are as exhausted by all the culture war debates as I am, it is actually really helpful to know that almost every single one, and, and I say almost every single one because I can't think of one that isn't this way, but I could be wrong, but almost every single one revolves around and gets stuck on this question, who most deserves compassion, right? Pick a topic. That's kind of the core of every topic and every argument and every debate. And the fact, that, the fact is there is something deeply wrong. It's almost like our pursuit of the kingdom without the king. Without a king ends up becoming anarchy and tribalism. It, gets, it, it goes off the rails. But there is something deeply wrong when we excuse, if not make a virtue, out of unkindness in the name of compassion. Right? We burn ourselves out with debate about what should actually be decided for us already. Here's what I mean by that. Right? Think about it this way. When, when compassion is our motive, compassion is not a bad moment, motive, it's just limited. When, and when compassion becomes our motive, kindness becomes, one, conditional, right? because it's only if they need or deserve it, or if they are innocent enough, or they are, they are a victim, right? Otherwise, they can help themselves, right? Gosh, if you, you might have even grown up in a church where people said, like, God helps those who, who help themselves. And let me tell you, that's actually not in Scripture. That's part of what I'm talking about, okay? And number two, our compassion, or our, excuse me, our kindness becomes inconsistent because it, it, it becomes based on how we feel at the time. And even if we think somebody's deserving of our kindness or our compassion, it becomes inconsistent because if we don't feel it, then it's not, we don't have a sufficient motive to do it anyway. Right? However, if covenant is our motive, then our kindness becomes, number one, obligated. I'm going to talk about that word a lot more here in a minute. You're like, oh, that doesn't sound good. Welcome to being a 21st century individualist, okay? One, it becomes obligated, means, which means that it is a given that our kindness is given. 
It is a given that our kindness is given. And freely, not because of a need, but through the need. The need becomes the opportunity and the avenue for our kindness. It is not the basis of it. And it becomes number two, our kindness becomes in, it becomes indiscriminate. Indiscriminate kindness. Right? We kind of know we're supposed to be kind to our family. I mean, we want them to be kind to us, all right? We should be kind to our friends. We want to be kind to our friends for the most part. Even if you're not a Christian, you probably are saying, like, yes, it's a good idea. We should be kind to our neighbors. And yes, I also strive to be kind to our neighbors. But how many of us are actually and truly kind to our enemies? Might it be because compassion, we insist compassion is our motive instead of covenant? Might it be that we insist we should feel kind toward people before we do it as opposed to we are obligated to it whether we feel kind toward someone or not, right? If you're married, you know what I'm talking about, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, upon learning that one of his dear friends was engaged, he wrote a letter from prison. He was, all, he was also, like Mephibosheth, being, waiting to be executed, except he actually was. He wrote to his friend who had just got engaged, your marriage sustains your love, Your love does not sustain your marriage. We have this so backwards as a culture, as a society. And the fact that we all cringed, and I even cringed saying obligate, like if if covenant is our uh, motive, then kindness becomes obligated. I cringed too, okay? But obligation is actually a gift. It can be a gift. Not, obliga- not all obligation is, of course. But all obligation is not a burden. It is actually a gift. It is good, right? We understand in marriage that our, our marriage sustains our love and not our love our marriage because a covenant is made with vows. And we, that is how we that's how I officiate weddings. That's, why, that's how we get married because we know, know that love suffers to the degree that we are looking over our shoulder or exploring elsewhere. We don't obligate ourselves. That's why we need to be married, right? Now, I loved, I, I, it was not intentional. I would love to say it was that we, we planned and timed uh, what, we did, what Michael and Beth did with the kids this morning and that first question about belonging with this sermon. I wish I could say we did, but it was actually pure coincidence, and by that I mean God's sovereign, okay? Right? We live, we are living in a loneliness epidemic right now, according to, like, like this is statistically verifiable. There is data out the wazoo about how every single year the, we in America are feeling more and more lonely, and it is not limited to non-Christians or Christians. It is across the board, We talk about the importance of belonging, to belonging in community, but what's fascinating to me is that as Christians, we have more reason to believe and to trust in the importance of belonging than anybody else, and yet, it is actually our starting point and our default, if not our stubborn insistence, that we can belong to God and not to a church. That it's possible to belong to God, to be in Christ, but not to be in Christ's body, physically. Like, 
don't get me wrong, we, we kind of rationalize this by saying, well, well that's talking about, well, if you're, if you're a Christian and you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit, that means you're part of the universal church, which is a really cool way of like trying to get all of the perks and the benefits without taking any of this responsibility and the obligation of it, okay? It's true, but that we actually, if we belong to God, we are not freed to opt out. This is why we're lonely, it's not the only reason, but it's a big reason. Scripture does not understand how there could be any difference. It is one and the same, right? We, we, we have this reaction against words like obligation because the solution to our every problem is always an ever greater freedom, limitless freedom. The problem is the more free we are, the more disconnected we are, the more lonely we are, the more divided we are, and the less human we become, not just ourselves, but to other people. Constraint can be good, right? Let me ask this. When Jesus says in the gospel, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, I strongly suspect that most of us Christians hear that verse and think, well, that's because his grace is that good. We can kind of put up with being yoked to Jesus. We don't actually see Jesus' yoke his, our constraint, our obedience, our obligation to follow what he calls us to do, to love our neighbors ourselves. we don't think that that's a good thing, but it might be worth it. I would tell you that Jesus is never going to ask us to do something that actually isn't good for us also. It's crazy to me, and, and honestly, like, these are things that I, I am wrestling with as well, Right? His constraint and obligation is flourishing. That's what makes it good. I said in my, um, uh, or in, uh, Elle sent out a, a church-wide email reminder about the membership class uh, this weekend. In it, she said, uh, at my request, that, that I, the sermon was going to be a lot about membership this morning. And it is, in, at this point especially, right? Because I have a hunch. I have a hunch that many of us are looking for and waiting to find a church that has compassion in all of the best of ways, in ways that look just so similar to, to 2 Samuel chapter 9, not realizing that a huge reason why the church, we experience the church as inconsistent and, con and conditional in our compassion and our kindness, our love for God and neighbor, is actually because we are undecided and undercommitted toward the church. That actually part of the thing that we are looking for can only and ever be experienced by, by opting into obligating ourselves to it. And that means, if that's true, it means that we are just kicking the can further down the road and we are robbing ourselves of the existential satisfaction that we should long for. Opting into pastoral care before you need it, and especially before you don't want it. Being all in committed and not having to decide whether to stay or go when things get hard because things do get hard. To follow Jesus is not easy, but it is good. All of this actually deepens our love for God and our relationship with Him, just like marriage. Let me put it this way. If kindness to your spouse, to your kids, to your neighbors, to your enemies, if it is covenantally obligated, 
then you will not stop seeking opportunities for compassion like David did. Even if 10 years pass and you don't have the opportunity to be compassionate, you'll actually ask where the opportunity is instead of waiting for it to come to you. That's the difference, right? In many ways, I would say, I would, even, I would encourage us to consider that maybe the first step in loving our neighbor, which, I, again, I don't think there's anybody who's like, nah, sorry, that's a bad idea. Like, I think we're all, I think we all agree, right, that, that loving your neighbor is a good thing, that maybe we would be able to do so better if we were members of a church. I know that sounds weird. It sounds like maybe, oh, why, that's a distraction. I can have, if I'm not as committed to the church, then I can be far more committed to my neighbor. That's not how this works, actually. That's not what Scripture says. Covenanting with the church makes compassion for our neighbor far more likely because our intention is freed up for greater compassion. Okay, I'll stop beating that drum for now. Let me say this, and this is my last point, and we'll jump into the Q&A after this, but we need to talk about the fuel for David's kindness, and that is God's chesed. You can, you can even say it like you have something in your throat, chesed, if you want, okay? The fuel for David's kindness is not Saul's faithfulness, it's not even Mephibosheth's faithfulness, and it's not even Jonathan's faithfulness as his friends. It is God's chesed. You probably caught this in verse 3a. And the king said, is there not still someone in the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? The kindness of God. It's not just kindness. It's a specific kind of kindness. It's the kindness that is of God. And that means, and the word being used here in in Hebrew is hesed. And yes, it's translated here as kindness. But there are exactly 248 uh, occurrences of this word in Scripture There are 120 in the Psalms alone, and it means more than just kindness for us. It's a covenantal kindness, but it means means a a severity of kindness that is far greater than politeness. It is a steadfast love and faithfulness that that when it is used to describe God's love, this word has said, it is always without a single exception in the context of or synonymous with God's covenantal promise and commitment, his obligation to his people. See, I, I, know, I know we, let me put it this way. If you've ever struggled with wondering if God loves you, and who hasn't struggled with that, most often what we are struggling with is how God feels toward you. You need to know that God has sworn on his name. He said, I am not myself. I am not God if I do not love you. God has obligated himself to love you. If you are worried whether God feels loving toward you, you need to know that he loves you even if you doubt and anyway. Because he has said, I will cease to, I cease to be God if I do not love you, right? This is why, think about it this way. You know the word gospel is in the New Testament a lot, and that is a good summary of the good news of God's love for us in Christ. Has said is the gospel of the Old Testament. Anytime you see 
Steadfast love and kindness. It is saying that this is good news, that God loves us anyway because he has obligated himself to his people and it is pure and utterly and always ever eternally grace. And that is very good news. What's interesting is of those 248 times, verse three is one of very few where it is actually using, it is in reference to uh, a mere human being's kindness toward another person. It's still the hesed of God, the hesed of the Lord, Adonai, right? But, um, but there are only about 20 or 30 of those times. And I say 20 to 30, like that's a range. Like how is that, like how, how is that unclear? Like it's, and it's because the, the overlap between God's love for us and our love for other people is actually so closely overlapped. Sometimes in scripture, especially in the Hebrew, it's hard to know which one he, they're talking about because they are so synonymously equated with one another that our said toward others is always forever and completely and explicitly every single time in Scripture framed as a reflection of or a response to God's love for us, the said of God. So if for no other reason than just that alone, said cannot be on the basis of Israel's worth because it's not earned. It cannot be on the basis of Israel's innocence, because they're not deserving or need, and therefore it's not owed, but on the basis of God's covenantal kindness alone, because he has obligated himself covenantally. Another way of saying this is the shape and the motive of David's kindness toward Mephibosheth is only possible if it is fueled by the shape and the motive of God's has said for him. But actually more than that, there is a sense when... when when, when David says, how, who can I show the kindness of God? He's not saying, how, how do I respond? He's not just saying, how do I respond to God's kindness by also being kind to other people? He's saying, how do I show God's kindness to them? How, how, how do I not just reflect it, but how can I be an agent of God's love for a member of the dynasty that rejected God? How, he's saying, how can I show even more grace, even for those whom can and should be God's enemies? Do you see what I say? Do you see what I mean when I say that when, when covenant is our motive, then kindness becomes indiscriminate? It actually, we seek to, to show it in even the least likely and the least logical of places. Not because we feel it, but because it is actually how God works. And God's, and this is the crazy thing, and this is why, like, this is why we need the church. I say this as a pastor. Look, okay, actually, I was talking with this in our community group. Um, in our community group the other day, uh, I was actually telling the rest of the guys there because we had like women's and men's. It was really awesome. We got a chance to like kind of cut it up and talk about some stuff. And I was like, you guys don't realize how awesome it is to have to come to church every week. Because as a pastor, I mean, I, yeah, I have to be there, and it's a rare occasion that I'm not here, even if I'm not serving or preaching in some way. Like, I try, like, it's, my, it's literally my job. Thank God. I don't have to deal with all the crap you guys do. I don't have to be tempted with the mountains. I don't have to be tempted with stuff. You know, you could also do that too. It doesn't have to be your job. It, you could consider yourself obligated. I'm not going to force you not trying to guilt trip you. I'm saying that that conversation that you have every week, do we go to church this week? 
Imagine how less exhausted you would be if you didn't have to figure that out every single week. Imagine the, the margin you might have to deal with the decision fatigue that you feel having to do that literally everywhere else in life. This is how Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. It is good. It is better than the yoke and the, and the burden that the world puts on us. And the reason why we need the church, and the, and the church needs uh, uh, each other, like, you can't, there's no start and end point. It is a beautiful gospel feedback loop because what the implications of everything we we're talking about this morning, covenantally speaking, God's has said transforms our imperfect, flawed, often selfish attempts at kindness into God's has said. The implication of that is not just to the degree that we are faithful, our kindness is, is showing the kindness of God. No, it's that especially where we are unfaithful, God's faithfulness shines through all the more clearly. This is why we, we, I use the language, we call the church the ordinary means of grace that God has given as a gift to his people. Okay, let me pause there. I'm gonna take some questions. Man, I, I could literally preach on that point all day. Um, okay, first question. What does it mean to opt into pastoral care before you need it? And is this something that non-members can't opt into? This is a very good question. Thank you for saying this, asking this. Um, what does it mean to opt into pastoral care before you need it? Something I've learned over the years as a pastor is that Sometimes pastoral care feels really good when you're receiving it. Like, okay, sometimes receiving pastoral care does not feel good. Sometimes pastoral care looks like, as a pastor, saying, you're loved, you're accepted, you are here, and what that means is we are going to help you through this and we are going to carry you when you can't walk yourself. Sometimes pastoral care means we love you and we are here for you. It is all grace through and through, and you need to get off your butt. And we are going to be here for you, helping you do that. And you need to stop looking at porn. And you need to stop being unkind to your husband or wife. And you need to come to church, right? Sometimes that pastoral care is, is in line with our longings, and sometimes it is very counterintuitively against the grain of our hearts. When you become a member, what you are saying is, I actually really want that before I'm asked. And I say that because if you're not a member and you come to me and you come to help, if you, you ask for pastoral care, I'm going to say, hey, I just want, like, what are you asking for? If you're not a member, I will ask you, are you asking for the kind of pastoral care that only feels good? or the kind of pastoral care that also feels really uncomfortable. Because a member has opted into that, and a non-member has not said, has not opted into that, okay? That, that's part of what I mean. So can non-members opt into it? Yes, but like kind of each and every time, and then you have to decide, should we go to the mountains, or should we go to church, or should we, like, when you are in crisis, especially when you really actually need it, and especially if you don't want it, like, you're, that is a, let me put it this way. When you feel vulnerable and exposed already, that is a, a, it is harder to go somewhere further when you, if you haven't already. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm not explaining this very, very well. Um, let me pause. 
Michael, I feel like you're really good at this. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Do you have a better way of saying this that is helpful? Because, and if not, it's totally on me. I'm putting you on the spot. Maybe uh, I'll move up so I am not feedback looping, um, <clears throat> although I might still. Um, I guess maybe a way of thinking of it is like, I mean, using uh, marriage as an illustration that you just used, which by the way, even if you're not married, this is still helpful. I just got married like a year and a half ago, so 36 of my years were unmarried years. So, um, <clears throat> But the concept of, uh, someone else actually having a voice into your life is something that we as humans uh, tend to be resistant to when we are insecure or feel vulnerable or in an area where we're struggling to change. Uh, but knowing that another party um, we have committed ourselves to and they've committed themselves to us uh, creates space to have those hard conversations. And that is, in many ways, what we're talking about with membership, is that there's, before that moment of vulnerability or difficulty comes, there's been a sense of saying, like, hey, we're in this together. Yeah. Um, and that is a really uh, beautiful thing. And it's not just a, it is, and also one of the things that I'm, I'm so aware of when we talk about things like membership is we are understandably afraid of um, relationships that are uh, coercive as their basic function. And when we talk about obligation and membership, we so quickly jump to, okay, so that means that I have committed myself to a relationship that it's now a coercive relationship. That's not what we're saying. <laughs> we're saying like in marriage, we've, been, we've committed ourselves to a relationship where we say like, I need this. Um, and also like the body needs me uh, and we're agreeing to do this thing together. Um, and to encourage and challenge one another in the midst of ups and downs. So I don't know if that no, helps. That's, that's yeah. really good. Yeah, and, and uh, maybe a good way of saying it too is that, that that obligation is reciprocated, right? Like what what the church is committing to you as a member is to we are obligated toward a pastoral care that is not coercive. And where if if it look, God forbid that that is ever something that Michael or I do whatever. Um, you are not obligated to put up with it, okay? That is not part of, that's not what membership, membership is or should be about, right? Uh, it is invitational, mm -hmm. okay? Because we are obligated ourselves to love and care for you. And that, and thank you, Michael, that's awesome, yeah. 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 Uh, it, last question before we go into communion, because this feels very related. Obligation makes us cringe because it evokes feelings of guilt, how can we disentangle gracious obligation from guilt? St. Augustine said, um, I believe in order to know. Okay? What he's articulating there is if you wait to know until you, uh, if you wait to believe until you sufficiently know or have a, a certainty about something, you never actually will believe. And so to answer both the question previous and this one, there's a sense that the way to experience obligation in a positive, beautiful, flourishing sense that is it hopefully and at least a, 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 an imperfect reflection of when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, the way to experience that is to experience it, right? Similarly, the way that obligation becomes disentangled from guilt 
is to obligate yourself to those who will help you disentangle it and to offer you forgiveness. Because here's the thing, sometimes maybe guilt is appropriate, in which case there is mercy and forgiveness. That's why we do confession of sin. That's why we, have, we need forgiveness in Scripture. This is why Jesus died for us. Jesus didn't die for us because he's like, hey, this will be fun. They don't really need it. He could, he could have done something else, okay? The way to disentangle it is to be absolved of it with grace. And that makes obligation increasingly, over time, we grow in experiencing it and understanding it as an ordinary means of grace. Does that make sense? Okay. If you've got questions about this, like, I know I opened up a whole can. I mean, we didn't just talk about obligation. We're talking about church membership. I mean, we're talking about justice and what does that look like and compassion and culture. Man, so it's basically Sunday at the table. So if you have more questions, you want to talk about that, I'm an open book. I don't want anybody here to, like, if you're not a member, you should do not hear me say, like, yes, you should become a member. However... You will not be loved or cared for less. It's actually for your good that we're encouraging and inviting you into that, okay? If you need more time, like I know from several of you, you have experienced churches where membership uh, was wielded against you. Some of you have taken a year or more to process that. We're here for it. We're here for it. Just don't rule it out, I guess is what I'm saying. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, <laughs> What a mess we have made of our world. What a mess we have made of ourselves and of, of good things that you have called us to do, that you have invited us into. And God, we have, we make it both harder on ourselves and also we live in a world and, and sin and, and in light of a brokenness that is, that makes us hard objectively even before we get a we, we, we touch anything with it. Lord, it is, it would require a God who has obligated himself covenantally to love people despite ourselves. And Lord, it sounds counterintuitive, I know, that, that, that in your command to love our enemies as ourselves, we actually find a greater and deeper experience of your love for us. Because apart from what Jesus did, we were and are your enemies. And Lord, praise you. Thank you for your said. Thank you for your steadfast love and kindness that makes any of our mimicry thereof actually more powerful and potent. That is how we have hope in this world. So Lord, thank you for your kindness toward your people, toward us. I pray in your name. Amen.